Last week we spent a lot of time looking at a character that had never appeared on the scene in Mark's drama. A man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was, as we studied last week, a Roman governor. He was an important figure, but not one that bears any historical significant mention. In fact, he would be a blip on history were it not for his confrontation with Jesus of Nazareth. We know more about him from the gospel accounts than probably any other historical or secular accounts. This man is prominent in this story because of Jesus. And this week, we're going to add another newcomer to the scene. One we've, we've never seen before, we've never heard from before. This man's name is Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is someone we know literally nothing about historically. From my knowledge, no secular source ever addresses him. The only thing we know about him is contained in four Gospels. You say, well, why does that matter? Why did you emphasize four Gospels? Because every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mentions and features Barabbas here at this place in the story. And every one of the four Gospels prominently features Pilate, the Roman governor, in their accounts. You say, well, why does that matter? Because God gave us the four Gospels to provide kind of a piece-together account of Jesus' life, but, but, but they don't tell all of the story. One focuses on one event, one focuses on another. There are ones that focus on multiple. You know, not even all four of the Gospels share all of the names of Jesus' twelve disciples. Even the 12 disciples don't get specially highlighted and focused across all four of the Gospels. And yet Barabbas does. Pilate does. Viewing him, the Gospel accounts, viewing both of them as central characters in the narrative. And not just that. The Apostles' Creed one of the oldest, if not the oldest, operating Christian creed, the center of our faith. In fact, my plan is once we finish up with the Gospel of Mark, to go to the Apostles' Creed and have us memorize it together and preach through the entire Apostles' Creed so that we are all grounded in what are the foundations of our faith. That Apostles' Creed includes these words. Have you ever remembered that? That Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is included in our fundamental creed of what we believe as Christians. Why does Pontius Pilate matter so much? Why does Barabbas matter so much? It would be like if you were watching a movie and you were hardly paying any attention and suddenly two people show up on the screen that you've never seen before and you nudge your wife because you've been sleeping through most of it and say, honey, who are these people? Why are they suddenly the stars of the show? Why are they suddenly central characters? That's the question I want to answer today. Why Barabbas? Why is he such a key player here? Why Pilate? Why is it so important 
that Pilate was the one who delivered Jesus over to death. Why do we say in our Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate? My suggestion on this last Sunday of 2023 is that these two characters are central to understanding what the gospel is that we believe. And understanding these two characters and their role in this story, I trust, will give us some wonderful practical guidance for where our focus may be as we flip the calendar over from 2023 to 2024. The title of the message this morning is simply this, The Sinner Freed, The Savior Condemned. The Sinner Freed, The Savior Condemned. And we're going to look at each of these three characters in this story, the main ones. We're going to look at Barabbas. I'm going to call him the guilty. That'll be our first point. Secondly, we're going to look at Pilate. We're going to call that heading the governor. And thirdly, we're going to focus on the role that Jesus plays in all of this. And we're going to simply summarize it by calling it the gospel. The guilty, the governor, the gospel. Let's start with the guilty. We've already identified him. We've already previewed him. Who is Barabbas? Now, if you grew up in church or in a family that attended church, you probably have heard of Barabbas. If not, no, as I mentioned, this is the first time he shows up in this story. He, this is the only thing we know about him historically. We don't know where he's from. We don't know how old he was. We don't know any other defining characteristics. Here's what we know about him. We know his name. Bar-Abbas. And so we have an idea. Bar-Abbas. Bar-Rabbas. Bar is the prefix that means son. Son of. Like, my last name is Magnus Son. That's a very Scandinavian thing to say. One long time ago, I had a relative named Magnus. And he was such a big deal, everyone that came from him was called a son of Magnus. John's son, son of John. Going way back in history somewhere, that was the family name because that was the kind of patriarch, the person. And so here we have this prefix, Bar is son of an abbess. So he was the son of abbess. Say, so well, what does that mean? The word abbess actually, remember Abba? Abba, Father, we talked about that. Abba, Jesus said those words. What does that word Abba mean? Father. That's the idea. So, Bar Abbas means son of the Father. Well, that's really helpful, Peter. The son of the Father. That seems fairly self-explanatory. Well, there is wonderful irony here, isn't there? There are two men who are standing, and the crowd is having to choose between them the son of the father, Barabbas, and the son of the father, Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the crowd is forced to choose. Which one? Barabbas or Bar God, son of God? And this story is about who ultimately they chose and why. We don't know much about Barabbas other than his name and what he did. Will you notice with me if we have your Bibles here in Mark chapter 15 and look at, start with verse 6. Now at that feast, what feast? The Passover feast, he, that's Pilate, 
released unto them one prisoner whomsoever they desired. Now think about this. What did the Passover feast celebrate? The deliverance of the Israelites from ancient slavery. You can read about that in the Old Testament book of Exodus. The deliverance of them from slavery into freedom. And so think about this picture. Every year the, the, the Jews came together at Passover to celebrate their deliverance, the release that they had from slavery. And so apparently Pilate, looking to do a good turn and show the Jews how merciful Rome was, every Passover at this feast, he said, I'll deliver, I'll release someone who we're holding as a criminal. And it'll just be like a pardon, like a presidential pardon. Someone gets to go free. And so that was apparently the historical background. And look at verse 7. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now we've heard a lot politically about insurrection over the last several years, and that's the last I'm going to say uh, on that subject. Insurrection. What is that? It's rebellion. It is the attempted overthrow or interference with lawful authority. Now what's interesting is, is that this was at least part of the offense that Jesus was being accused of by the chief priests. Remember? Remember what they said? He's telling us not to pay taxes to Caesar. All, all utterly false. But that was the charge they were making against him. Now, compared to that false charge, you have an utterly true charge against a man named Barabbas. This man was one of these Jewish rebels, Jewish apparently freedom fighters, people who were angry that Rome was ruling over these proud ancient people. And so he put his mind to rioting, to rebelling against Rome. And not only that, not just being a general rabble-rouser, he had actually murdered someone in that insurrection. In fact, one of the gospel accounts calls him a, a noted criminal or a notorious criminal. The kind of guy that everyone in the community would say, oh, Barabbas, we, we know about him. Oh, you say his name. Oh, yeah, that guy. I know who that guy is. He was notorious. Very interesting. Now, what was his fate? His fate should have been death. His fate should have been death, not only as a matter of God's law, which from the Old Testament taught that if you murdered someone and there were two or three witnesses to your crime, eyewitnesses to your crime, you deserve to die. That is what God said from the book of Genesis. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And you can look at the Old Testament law and see that God put very, very, very strict rules around capital punishment. Like I said, two or three witnesses. God said one witness, you never put someone to death on only one eyewitness. Two or three eyewitnesses, then you can put someone to death for that. It was very strict, and you could apply something very similar to the application of capital punishment here in, in our day today. But in any event, Barabbas deserved death under, under God's law. He also deserved death under Roman law. Remember that the two people who were, who were sentenced to death and died on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, who were they? Thieves, robbers, 
They deserved that they got the death penalty. Where was Barabbas heading? In my view, almost certainly toward the death penalty. In fact, but for this event, Barabbas likely would have been on that same cross that Jesus was. He would have been crucified next to the two thieves on either side of him. So notice here, this man is guilty. He deserves death as a notorious criminal. But notice then how Pilate reacts to this offer. Look at secondly at the heading we'll call the governor. Will you notice this with me? In verse number 8, And the multitude, so you've got a crowd gathered around Pilate's place of government, and the multitude is crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. Release someone. It's time to make a pardon. So deliver someone to us. And here is where Pilate's strategic instinct begins kicking in. He has already told the crowd, you'd see from another gospel account, that he doesn't think Jesus has done anything wrong. He's already rendered him not guilty. He says, I find no fault in this man. He's interviewed him. And remember what we concluded last week? He, he said Jesus is not a threat to Rome. If he says he's the king of the Jews, it's a different kind of king. He said his kingdom is not of this world, otherwise his servants would fight. I don't need to worry about him rebelling against Rome. He's safe to me. I don't find any fault in him. And he told the people that. And yet now, they're still out for his blood. And so what does Pilate start doing? Okay, how am I going to get out of this mess? I can't allow the people to riot. I can't, I can't allow them to themselves bring this great uproar, otherwise my job is on the line. And remember, as we said last week, ultimately there was a kind of riot or insurrection, a complaint that was lodged against him that led to him losing his job and basically disappearing from the historical scene. That was exactly what he was afraid of. He couldn't allow them to riot. But how was he going to deal with a man he believed was innocent? A man who clearly did not deserve to die. Well, notice what he begins doing to scheme. Pilate answered them, saying, verse 9, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? I've got a brilliant thought, he says. Perfect! Here's the guy you, you call the king of the Jews. Why don't I release him to you? That, that kills two birds with one stone. I have to deliver someone to you. And so why don't I do the guy that I don't think is any threat to Rome, and that's not any problem. Here, take Jesus, the king of the Jews. This guy is trying to wriggle out of a problem that could have been solved if he had just stood up with the courage of his convictions and his integrity and said, this man's innocent. He shouldn't die. No, not that. Let's try to wriggle our way out of this. Notice verse 10. For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Now, you, you need to understand a little bit about this historically. The chief priests, in their ordinary course, would never have wanted a guy like Barabbas to be released. You say, why not? Because people who were fighting against Rome were dangerous to the Jewish chief priests and to the religious elite. You say, why? Guess who chose the Jewish high priest? Who chose him? Pilate. Pilate picked the high priest. The high priest was dependent on Pilate, not only for his job, 
but for what his job gave him, which was wealth. Remember we talked about the temple complex and those sacrifices and the money changing that was going on? Who was that enriching ultimately? It was enriching the, the, the religious leaders of the day. So this was their job on the line. This was their money on the line. They wouldn't have wanted someone like Barabbas running around stirring people up against Pilate, rebelling. No, that would put their job on the line. And so this is already against their interest. Pilate is starting to figure out what's going on here. Wait, if, if you want Barabbas and you're not interested in this religious figure, I know what's going on. You're envious of his popularity. You're jealous of what the crowds are saying about him and not saying about you. I know what's going on. Pilate figured it out. He knew why this, this whole thing was being set up. And so what does he do? Notice verse 11. The chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them against their self-interest. Now, the people may have been willing. The people may have been the ones who were, were sympathetic with insurrection and with rebellion, perhaps. But the chief priests acting against their self-interest are, 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 are stirring them up to release Barabbas unto them. And look at verse 12. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And I wonder if there was a kind of a little bit of a hard edge in this. That Pilate's poking at him now. He's frustrated. He's irritated. And he said, What should I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Wow, that would have got the chief priest riled up. That would have been a burr under their saddle. What do you mean? In fact, later when Pilate uh, gives Jesus over to be crucified, he puts the inscription over the cross that would normally indicate the crime he was convicted of, and he said, King of the Jews. And those chief priests said, take it down. No, say, say he said, I am King of the Jews. That's what he said. No, he said, what I have said, I have said. It's going to be up there, King of the Jews. He was irritated with these people, I think. They weren't letting him out of his little jam. And so now he knows someone in, is innocent and he's got to figure out what he's going to do with this guy. And so what happens? Look at verse 13. And they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, why, what evil hath he done? He's saying, I've already found him not guilty. What's he done wrong? You can just see him getting almost panicked, getting upset. Why? What has he done? Tell me what he's done. And what happens? And they cried out the more exceedingly, crucify him. Crucify him. And friend, we in Minneapolis have seen riots in recent years. We've seen mobs. We've seen people demanding things. We've seen it across our country, and you can just picture this scene, can't you? This crowd beginning to shout, yell, crucify that man! And now Pilate, the very thing he feared, is coming to pass. A riot forming over the prosecution of a man he knows is innocent. And they're demanding him to be railroaded, to be executed. Look at verse 15, will you? And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him, when he had him brutally whipped to be crucified. Think about that phrase, friends. Willing to content the people. Why did he release Barabbas? 
the guilty criminal? Why did he deliver Jesus? Because he wanted to protect his job. Because of his own self-interest that caused him to listen to the shouts of the people more than the cries of his own guilty conscience. And another gospel account gives the famous picture of Pilate coming out with a basin of water and washing his hands and saying, I wash my hands of the blood of this innocent person. What do the gospel accounts want you to know? They want you to know that Jesus was innocent of the charges against him. What do they want you to know? They want you to know that Jesus was delivered over because of envy. And they want you to know that Pilate gave in to a mob not out of his integrity, but out of his own self-interest. Pilate is the man in the middle. He chooses the way of least resistance. And in the process, friends, get this. Get this very clearly. In the process, he committed the most unjust act in human history. Delivering over the sinless Son of God to be crucified in this horrifying, torturous death the greatest evil that has been accomplished. Now, now why? What are we to take from this focus on Pilate? Pilate, he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is that a central tenet of our faith? Let me give two things for us to think about as we go into a new year. First of all, it's this. The lesson of Pilate, I think very clearly, is this. That we as Christians never should trust our political leaders to preserve and defend the cause of Christ in the world. Never. Never. Every time we rely on Pilate to stand on the, on the side of Christ and his kingdom and to, to reject the calls of the world and its kingdom and its self-interest, we will be disappointed, friend. Every time we have tried to ally the cause of Christ and his kingdom with Pilate and his self-interest, we go wrong and we end up doing damage to the cause of Christ in the world. Friends, I don't care if his name is Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any other politician you name and put in there. Do not place your faith and trust in that man to preserve and defend the cause of Christ and of his kingdom. Jesus can take care of his own kingdom when we seek first what he desires. Let's stand as people of integrity in this world. Let's stand always and unashamedly on the cause of Christ and him alone. But there's another lesson that we should take from this as we look to a new year. By the way, a presidential election year. Aren't you excited? There's another lesson we should take from this. Why I think our faith is so, is so grounded in Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate is this. What the early church needed to realize and embrace and what we still need to realize and embrace is that Pontius Pilate and all of his self-interest can never stop the cause of Christ and his kingdom. Do you see that here? 
Why was it so important that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate? Well, there's a clue, and I'll just give you this reference that you can go write down and, and read later. I'll just, I'll just summarize it briefly. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 24 through verse 28, this is after Jesus has been resurrected. This is after Peter has given the sermon at Pentecost that have led thousands of people to come to Christ. And now the chief priests, those same chief priests that were, that were getting the people stirred up to crucify Jesus, are now persecuting the early Christians, the apostles, Peter and James and John. And the early church gathers together and they have a prayer meeting. And listen to what they pray in Acts chapter 4. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, they're quoting Psalm 2. You can make a note of that and go look at it on your own time. Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. This is Psalm chapter 2 they're quoting. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one, Jesus. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. They looked back at history. They looked back at prophecy, Psalm chapter 2, and they said this is exactly what was prophesied by David hundreds of years ago. All the rulers of the world standing up against Jesus, the Messiah. And then listen to what they said. They were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. What were they saying? Yeah, what Pilate was doing? God, that was exactly what you knew and determined would be done beforehand. They weren't injuring your plan, God. They were furthering it without even knowing it. This was your purpose. This was your plan that Jesus would come and be crucified like this for our sins. God, you are sovereign. You are in charge. That's why it's important that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because every generation of Christian following them can look to what happened before Pontius Pilate and say, our God reigns. And let the kings of the earth and all the leaders do whatever they want. Let Putin do whatever he wants in Russia. Let President Xi do whatever he wants in China. Let the U.S. do whatever it wants, the Supreme Court and all of its leaders. Our God reigns. Friend, as we approach another year, another presidential election, when all around us, men and women, are going to be getting stirred up and angry and scared about the results, let God's people say, whatever happens in November 2024, my God reigns. And it will be according as his counsel has determined to be done. The guilty one is Barabbas. The governor is Pilate, who is ultimately being governed by a sovereign and almighty God. And third, there's the gospel. Why Barabbas? Why Barabbas? Friends, 
you have standing here, as I've said, the Son of the Father, Barabbas, and the Son of God the Father, Jesus himself. And the reality here provided for us in verse 15 is that Barabbas goes free. He is released unto them, and Jesus is delivered to be crucified. What do we see? The indisputably guilty one goes free. The innocent one, Jesus, stands instead of him and is placed, is nailed to that cross. Do you know Barabbas truly could have said, he died for me. He died instead of me. That morning, Barabbas woke up with nothing to look forward to but his conviction at trial and his death. And as the result of this unjust trial, instead, the doors of the prison swing free and Barabbas walks out to freedom and Jesus goes into the dock, the innocent one waiting to be crucified. And friend, in that picture, in that picture alone, we have an allegory of what we believe. Because going back all the way to the Old Testament, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. What a picture. Just like sheep wandering around. That's the picture of God in heaven looking down on us. We're just going our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We go free. He stands condemned with our transgressions. Romans 5.8 says this, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you ever wonder whether Barabbas understood this? Do you ever wonder whether we're going to see Barabbas in heaven? one day. Oh, it would be so amazing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being Barabbas in heaven and going around and saying, hey guys, I'm the one Jesus like literally died for. <laughs> he literally stood in my, he literally. Wow. Well, we have no idea. We'll find out one day. But the question as we stand here at the end of 2023 is not whether ever Barabbas got it, but whether you have. Whether you have claimed the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ as yours. Whether as he stands in front of that prison door and says, you can go out. I, I, I paid your punishment. I stood in your place. I was made to be sin for you that you might be made the righteousness of God in me. You can be declared innocent. Friend, that is the most important question for all of us as we stand at the end of this year. Have you accepted Jesus as your substitute, as your Savior? Have you embraced him as your King, as your Lord, as your God?
your eternal destiny hinges on your answer to that question. But I trust that many, if not all of us here, have embraced Jesus as our Savior. And so the question for you as you go into a new year is whether that is real to you. Whether the forgiveness that Jesus offers is yours. This is because there is a desire in every human heart to be redeemed. Look around the news. You see it everywhere. Maybe some of you saw the news uh, recently of the triumphant return to gymnastics of Simone Biles. Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast who, who, who has ever lived. You remember perhaps in the last Olympics, she had to withdraw. She couldn't do her famous twisties anymore. It was in her head. She was having anxiety. She withdrew. It was, a, it was a massive news event. And now she has come back, and she is as good as ever, dominating again. And I saw a, an article about it, and it described her road to redemption. Her road to redemption. There's something about that. You fell down. But you got up and you did it the next time. You messed up, but this time you're going to do it right. And friends, isn't that one of the biggest reasons that so many people stop on New Year's Eve and make resolutions? I mean, it's kind of an arbitrary date, isn't it? In fact, basically every day is a new year. You've got 365 days ahead of you until that day comes back. Why do we choose January 1? Well, thank the Romans for that, I guess. Why? Because I think probably in your heart, just like in my heart, we look back to the year ahead and we realize, you know, things aren't what they should have been last year. There were ways that I failed, that I messed up. There are some areas that I want to change when I look ahead to a new year. And you friends, the great truth of the gospel is that Jesus looks back to your old year to all your failings in that old year, to, to the most embarrassing mistakes you ever made. And he said, yeah, I know, because I died for those. And I offer you complete forgiveness and redemption for every one of them. Now let's go into the new year and change, shall we, by my power? Let, let's go into a new year and let's not repeat those. Let's accept my forgiveness and my power and experience my victorious life, my righteousness. And I hope that at the end of this new year, in this story of Barabbas, you'll see that whatever your failures, whatever your weaknesses and brokenness have revealed over the last year, that today, that today, you will reflect on the forgiveness that Jesus offers you will confess your sin and repent and accept his forgiveness afresh as we move into a new year that God willing will reveal his resurrection power working victory in your life.